Welcome to my Fluent Podcast, where we mainly interview language learners from all over the world. I am Daniel, I come from Switzerland, and the main goal when I started my Fluent Podcast was to become fluent in English. The idea of this podcast is to learn from these inspiring discussions and perhaps improve our learning methods. Or we may simply be inspired or motivated by these discussions. So Christina is our guest today. I have been following her for quite some time on Twitter because she knows a thing or two about language learning and also she shares her knowledge with others in a witty and funny way. Christina is the living proof that it is possible to reach a very high level in a language without the help of native speakers. And right before the interview, I have sent Christina one of her Twitter posts, which I wanted to talk about in the course of our interview. So let's get cracking. It was the tweet about native speakers are overrated. Ah, that one, yes. I made a bit of a sweeping statement there to attract attention, but yes, learning from native speakers is overrated. Native speakers are overrated, yeah, because that's what I want to talk with you and also, of course, about your language journey. Yeah, maybe could you please introduce yourself a little bit with the focus on language learning? Okay, I'm Christina. I'm from Bavaria. And I grew up with Bavarian dialect and standard German. Now, if you consider those are two different languages, then I grew up bilingual. If, as the government of Germany, you believe that Bavarian is just a dialect, then, well, I grew up with standard language and a dialect. And at about four years old, my parents discovered that there was uh, somebody offering kitty English classes in our town. So they sent me there to get me out of the house for an hour a week. And apparently I picked up a lot of English there because by the time I was in school and when I was eight or nine years old, we started English classes. I was already pretty much ahead of the other kids. Funny part is three other girls from my village also went to those early English classes, but they had forgotten everything by the time we were eight. Okay. So maybe those classes are not a guarantee that you're going to be good at English later in life, but at least for one out of four kids, it worked and I was already good in English. The teacher was German though. And all my English teachers for all my school years were German. So that's why I say learning from native speakers is overrated because I learned my English completely from German people. Then at 11 years old, I added Latin in school. And at 13 or 14, I got the chance to add a third language or choose more chemistry and physics and stuff. And I added Spanish. That's my language journey in school. And then I turned 17 and had my first boyfriend and he had Finnish ancestry and loved visiting his grandparents in Finland. So I started learning a bit of Finnish because of him. Eventually we broke up, but I kept the Finnish language. (laughs) And at 19, I I traveled to Finland and... um... Christina, can I add something to it? Because I think on your Twitter account, you mentioned Kalsari Kani. Is this Finnish? Kalsarikani, yes, that's Finnish. The stress is always on the first syllable in Finnish. And if you see a double consonant, that's a long consonant. Kanni. 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 Okay. Kalsarikani. Yes, it means uh, drunk in your underwear. (laughs) Yeah, that is fascinating that there is a book about this. Finnish has even a a word for it. It's unbelievable. (laughs) Yeah, because Finnish is a bit like German. They just glue words together. All the time they're gluing words together. I think the longest Finnish words are a lot longer than the longest German words. Because it's an agglutinating language to begin with. So gluing it together comes natural to them. And um, that's one nifty thing if you're learning Finnish and you know German already because you're already used to gluing words together. You just keep doing the same thing in a new language. So we were at the time I was 19 and I traveled to Finland at 19 for a holiday and I got more or less conversational in Finnish. Then I came back and I was in university at that moment in Regensburg in Bavaria and they offer free language classes. So guess where I went? 
different language each year. For my three years of studying there, I started basic Russian, basic Swedish, and basic Turkish. And then I thought I might start German Sign Language, but it didn't fit my schedule. Pity. Because sign language is one thing you can't really learn from books. Yeah, yeah, yeah. of course. Yeah. Makes sense. And so, as you were mentioning Turkish, I think you have been learning Turkish also for the Glossika challenge, right? Because you were also mm -hmm. part of my front podcast already. It was on episode 120. I'm doing the Glossika challenge with Turkish because a few weeks ago, I went to a used bookshop and I found a textbook that's called Essentials of Modern Turkish. It's ancient, it's from the year 1960, and it focuses on grammar. It doesn't teach many words. So I thought I'd combine it with the Glossika challenge because Glossika seems to teach words, most of all. Let's see how far I can get in one month with my textbook for grammar and Glossika for words. Let's have fun. So it has been quite a journey so far on Turkish also. Well, I, I took it for a year in free uni classes. Then I abandoned it a bit, retook it for Glossika. Then I found a book in the used bookshop with a lot of grammar. And I always like the grammar of a language best. So now I'm looking at Turkish grammar. Yeah. Hoping uh, to get fluent one of these years. And that is also very intriguing because you said that grammar is something that you, you really like in the language. And usually that I would say people usually tend to say that they don't like it. And they even say it doesn't help you. Or maybe it's just a, a promotional strategy of some teachers or influencers who are saying grammar is not that important, right? That we should only focus on conversation. It depends on how you learn it. If you're going to be sitting there... Of course, you're going to go crazy and you're going to abandon your language learning forever. What I do is I look at the grammar book with a few questions in my head because I want to know how different people solve the same problem. For example, the problem, how do you talk about something that could have happened, but it didn't happen? How do different languages do this? In English, you do it with could have. In German, it's similar. In Chinese, I heard they have to do a real complicated construction where, where they talk, this happened but didn't, this other thing happen. So in Chinese, I heard it's pretty complicated. Um, in Maori, it's also a bit complicated. So I totally like these questions. How do people solve the same problem? Because they come up with very different solutions to the same problem. And in some languages, we have problems that other languages have completely solved. For example, in English, when I say we, we went to the swimming pool yesterday. People don't know if I'm talking about me and other people, we, or me and you, we. Well, there's languages that have two different words for that. And I totally like finding these tidbits. So I go into a grammar book, looking how, how are they doing these things and what I absolutely do not do is try to rote learn anything. I don't sit down trying to learn all the grammatical forms of the Russian language, all the cases or whatever. I just learn that all these cases exist. And by looking through the grammar book, I learn enough to recognize them when I see them. And then I start reading books. And in the books, I start finding all those things and getting a feeling for when to use what. I see. And, and when you are reading books, you consciously notice the grammar in the book? Depends. Depends. Sometimes? Um, sometimes I consciously do it that, for example, I read a page of the grammar book and then I take a novel and try to find those structures in the novel. But if the novel is good, it starts gripping me too much yes, and I can't of think course. of grammar anymore. I'm thinking <laughs> of the story and then I just keep reading the story and I forget to notice anything about grammar. But anyway, you keep seeing it, you keep seeing how the author used it, and in the end, you get a feeling for what looks right and what looks wrong. In the end, just like in your native language, you're not yeah, thinking about, yes. am I using this right? You're thinking about, does it look right? Does it look wrong? Yes, and I have to add here, because I also, I, I like reading a lot. So when I come across a vocabulary term, 
that I didn't know before. I tried to learn it, but all of a sudden it appears everywhere in the yes, books that I am reading or, or in, in articles. And before that, it, it never occurred to me that I, I came across this word. And I find this also very fascinating because, yeah, I have been reading many books, but to this day, there are so many words that I seem to, to, to have into contact for the first time. Yes, it's great. You keep yeah. learning words. And books are a great place to keep learning words because all the important words keep showing up. Yeah. So yeah. you don't need to learn a dictionary by heart. You just read a book, let the story grip you, and you'll have to look up a word now and then, of course. But it doesn't feel like studying. That's the, that's the great part. So where were we? When I was 20, I was at the end of my studies in Regensburg and I had started three languages there. And then I decided that my Latin was getting rusty. I had Latin in school for seven years and I didn't want to forget everything. So I signed up for an internet group that's called Greeks Latine Loquentium, group of Latin speakers. And there... I met someone and our only common language was Latin. So we started writing emails back and forth in Latin Oh, <laughs> <laughs> and he was Spanish. So I also started pulling out my old Spanish textbook from school and bought my very first Spanish novel and started reading that and started learning my Spanish from school level to real life level, and it didn't feel like studying because, you know, I wasn't love. I, was, I, was, I wasn't doing this for studying or for a language. I was doing it for a person. And we started visiting each other. We started speaking Spanish instead of Latin. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and in the end, I, I, I moved to Spain. I moved in with him. And then came a time where I did little about languages. I took up French because basically if you're already fluent in Spanish and Latin, then taking up French is easy. Sorry, before we go to the French part, maybe let's stick to Spanish because I think you also have a blog called The Horror of Learning Spanish. Could you tell us a little bit about your blog, what it is all about? That was an attempt of recycling my Spanish horror stories because I'm I'm, uh, I write sometimes in my free time. I come up with a story and I write it. And in fact, I would really like to write a novel at some point in my life, but I've tried and failed like 10 times. Anyway, I can write a short story. I don't abandon that. I can write a short story from beginning to end and it's, some of them might be good. So the ones that I had in Spanish, I put them on a substack with vocabulary footnotes. So... All the unusual words, all the difficult words have a footnote and you can read the story. And if it turns out you don't know the word, you can look it up in the footnotes. And I hope this might help learners. And I call it the horror of learning Spanish because all these stories are horror stories about, um, yeah, ghosts and monsters and people and, you know, horror stories. I read a lot of Stephen King. I see, I see. And have you ever been to... Book club, maybe? In person, no. I've joined a few online books. And because basically I just, I just like reading, but talking about the books with other people, I don't know. It's not, not a hobby of mine. Okay, but you do reviews, right? Because you have another blog in which you, yeah, you basically you write reviews about the books that you read. What I find very cool is that you read in several languages and your review is always in the language that the book was. Yeah, I, I started that blog precisely at 20 or 21 when I had recently moved to Spain. And when I had started taking up French and Italian and I thought I need to practice not just reading, I need to practice writing something. So each time I read a book, I write a bit about the book. And um, that turned into, th there were a few years when I was pretty active on that blog in German and English especially, and even asked publishing companies for review copies and everything. 
Uh, then life got busy and I've got that blog a bit abandoned right now and just published like once a month. But still, I write about books that I've read in the language in which I've read, if I yeah. can. I still can't. For example, I can't review a book in Turkish yet, but I'm working on it. Yeah, I see. When you are reading a book, do you take notes all the time or? No. No, it's just no. when you finished, you just think about it and then you, you write it down. I let it sit for a day or two and then I write about what I remember. And if I notice that I don't remember a thing about the book, it must have been a bad book and then I write that. <laughs> okay. If the story Thank is you. so forgettable <laughs> that you forgot it after two, forget it. And readers seem to like it when you occasionally admit that you didn't like a book. After maybe 10 pages or if you don't like it, you abandon it. I abandon more books than I read, yes. Okay. So we, Because we have to take the courage also to to say stop is not the right thing for, for us. Yes, you must be able to abandon a book because if not, you'll be torturing yourself. Yes, makes sense. Uh, <laughs> and that's why I don't usually buy a book if I don't know anything about it. Because if I end up abandoning it, then I spent money and now I'm not reading the book. So I I take a lot of library books. Because, you know, if you don't like it, you just give it back and somebody else will read it and like it. Yeah. Or I buy used books. If I go to the bookshop to buy new books, I look at the first two or three pages. Right there in the shop, I read the first two or three pages. And that's how I decide if I want to buy the book. Yeah, that makes sense. And also, I like Amazon because on the Amazon shop, you are able, well, most of the part, you are able to download like a sample of the book. And then... Oftentimes you can read about 10 or 20 pages and you already get the feeling of it. And mm. then I, sometimes I, I decide to purchase it and sometimes, yeah, I abandon it. It's pretty cool. Strategy, yes. And it's really cool that Amazon allows this now. So what about your French? I think we were on the French. Yes, um, by now language. I can read books in French pretty well. I can write emails in French. I have a pen pal in France. I've still, I haven't ever tried to have a conversation and spoken French. I've listened to a few French audiobooks, so now I can understand more or less perfectly pronounced slow audiobook French. But for example, when I see videos on the internet of some French protests or whatever, I understand very little. So real life French is still a bit too fast for me and a bit, I don't know the colloquial terms yet. And my husband and I have been planning for a long time, but we still haven't had the time to just take a trip across the border to France, find a, a small town, find a coffee shop and see if we can order a coffee in French. But we still haven't, still haven't found a day to do it. Or you could come to Switzerland because we have also parts of Switzerland in which we speak French. Yeah, might do that one day. In my canton, in my district where I grew up, it's even a bilingual canton or district. One half is French speaking and the other one is Swiss German speaking. But well, I consider Swiss German and standard German is different. So. I had to learn standard German at school. And yes, um, people are talking to each other in their dialect. I've, I've seen a bit of Swiss TV and I didn't understand a word. I need subtitles. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I need subtitles yeah, in standard I German. <laughs> and you know, it gets even more complicated because my dialect, even other Swiss people don't understand my dialect because my dialect is considered to be an exotic dialect in Switzerland. The, What dialect is it? The most difficult to... Well, it, it's called... In my dialect, it's called Ballisertich. Mm -hmm. And it's just because maybe because we were surrounded only by mountains. There were only a few possibilities to go further. I suppose that was one of the reasons... It's basically in the canton where the well-known mountain is, the Matterhorn mm -hmm. in German, it's called. And what do you call it? Yeah. It's Matterhorn. But I understood that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. But it always depends. Right? 
because mm. there are also words that are completely different or maybe sometimes we, we just speak with another gra grammatical structure and so on or or even for example <laughs> it's maybe funny but also the the articles are not the same for example in in my dialect it could be a, a d and and in standard german it's it's a der and so we have that in bavarian too for example standard german says das radio for the radio we say der radio also the plate yeah. on a table <laughs> a plate you eat from is in in bavaria's das teller cannot der teller so we have a bit of we have a few differences there between bavarian and german too Yeah, or for example, we also use Italian words sometimes or French words in, in my specific dialect. Or, or for example, the door, the door, I say the porta. Uh -huh. And porta, it's, yeah, it's like in, in it's Italian, Italian and, and French. Yeah. And sometimes I was not even aware that I am using a word from another language, right? But because it's just how I grew up and it was normal to me. And then when I met other people from Switzerland, they, they pointed it out that, <laughs> that, that, that I was talking <laughs> strangely. Yeah, that happens. So happens to people. You don't even know that others don't use your words. Um, the same <laughs> happens, in fact, to people from this town in Spain. If they travel to, for example, Madrid, they notice that I have a few local words that people in Madrid or in the rest of Spain don't use. But... Uh, Around here, they aren't yeah. considered any special words. They're considered normal words. Nobody knows that they're <laughs> strange. I've been learning all those. And now that I've been living in this town for like seven years, in fact, I don't know if I've learned any words that standard Spanish doesn't use. <laughs> probably, probably. Yeah. yeah, it's really difficult, right? Because, yeah, language is everywhere. And depending on your region, depending on, on social... Uh, how do you call it, social ranking or so on, it's uh, completely different. And it doesn't mean that someone from the USA understands someone from the UK completely, right? So yeah. that's why it's, it's difficult. It's I also assume. fascinating. It's, it, it, it's wonderful. Yes. It's one of the things that Definitely. I like about it. For example, one of the things that I love about Spanish is you learn Spanish in one place and then you travel across one border and it's com it's a completely different language lots of words suddenly mean something else for example fresa in in spain is a strawberry little red fruit strawberry is a fresa in south america fresa is a pretentious person and the strawberry has a different name yeah. and there's 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 lots of words that have it's like i say all the different spanishes Like Spanish is at this point five different languages that pretend to be the same. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. And and now where were we? I w I had moved to Spain, and here I um, well I um, started a project in applied embryology. That is um I started I got pregnant, and I had a baby, and I didn't have much time for language learning because I was also studying and working part time. I started uh, studying linguistics in Spain. So, yeah, I was basically reading in French, reading in Italian a bit, but I wasn't, I didn't consider that I was studying any language at that time. I did start learning about Catalan because I was enrolled in the University of Barcelona and you cannot study in Spanish in Barcelona. You have, you get all your University papers, your exam papers, everything is in Catalan, which is, depending on your definition, it's either a dialect or a completely new language. But anyway, people who know Spanish and people who know Catalan understand each other with a bit of goodwill. And all the Catalan speakers okay. also know standard Spanish because they learn standard Spanish in school. And most books, for example, or most TV shows don't get translated into Catalan. They just see them in standard Spanish because they understand them. So I started understanding Catalan too. But in my inner language classification, I don't consider it a new language. 
Now I know half of Barcelona is going to lynch me for this opinion, but I consider <laughs> Catalan a dialect because the difference between okay. standard Spanish and Catalan is, to me, less than the difference between Bavarian and standard German. So if I have to consider Bavarian a dialect, then I'm also going to consider Catalan a dialect. There you are. So anyway, um, kids grew up, kids started going to preschool and I suddenly had time every morning. Mm -hmm. And I started working part-time, but I still had a bit of time. Shop, and I started picking up more languages. And just last year, I picked I got a bit crazy and picked up three new languages in one calendar year. Um, I heard a song in Maori language and I decided that I absolutely have to learn Maori. Then I found out on the internet that Tokipona exists. It's a cute little invented language, constructed language with just um, 140, 100, no, 128 words. So you can learn that in a week, that language, and I did it. And then I found out that I was still missing a romance language from my collection. I still knew nothing about Romanian. So I picked up Romanian, three new languages in one calendar year, and I'm still not fluent in any of them, except maybe Tokipona, but as I said, it's just 128 words. So I'm still working on my Maori now. I'm working on my Romanian now. And then somebody on the internet told me, what do you think about language exchange? What do you think about these programs? He asked. So I looked it up. And the only language that language exchange teaches that I didn't already know was Swahili. So I took up Swahili <laughs> because I test language exchange. And yes, that's that's where we are now. And I have an Albanian textbook at home. And in the used bookshop, I bought a Polish textbook. And I have a Persian textbook. I haven't started those yet. And I have a Portuguese textbook. Portuguese is going to go fast, I believe. Anyway, uh, that's where I am now. Going a bit crazy right now. Starting one language after another. And did you mention Afrikaans? Uh, no. Not yet. <laughs> I haven't started Afrikaans yet. Okay, and it's not it's not on my list yet. Now the the language from Africa that I started is Swahili, and also at some point in my life I tried and failed to learn Arabic. But I hope that after Swahili I will be able to find my way into Arabic because Swahili has a lot of Arabic roots, so I might recognize a few words already. I see, I see. So you mentioned Tokipona. Is it Tokipona, right? And there are, si, tokipona. Tokipona. there are only 120 words. So how does communication 120, work? 120, when it, when it was first invented, the girl who invented it wanted a simple language to basically, to simplify her thoughts. It was an experiment in the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis that says that language shapes your thoughts. And if there's no word for something in a language, then it will be hard to to talk about it. Now, you and I know German, and we know that if there's no word for something, you just invent one. And that's what happened with Tokipona too. People learned that language, picked up that language, and they they wanted words for things, and they started inventing words for things. So... Really soon, the language went from 120 basic words to 128 core words that you absolutely need to know. And then there's a list of, I don't know how many extra words that you can learn if you want to, which are basically words for objects. Because in original Tokipona, a lot of things simply have no name. But uh, people are inventing the names now, or they are combining words, for example, for elephant, They just say big animal, but then there's lots of big animals. And so what big animal are you talking about? So you, you end up needing yeah. specific words if you want to talk about specific things. And that's happening to Tokipona right now. And it's, it's fascinating to watch because the whole point of Tokipona was keeping it as small as possible, but people refuse to stick to 120 words. They are expanding <laughs> it just like every natural language starts inventing new words just because people want those words. And have you ever had a conversation in Tokipona 
or did you read on Twitter? On Twitter, not not, okay. not a spoken, not a spoken conversations, but um, lots of people are tweeting and talking porno, and I sometimes comment. Okay, but you you can say that it works well, right? Even though there are only so few words, so the communication is not like a lot of misunderstandings or so. Well, it's still it's still a bit ambiguous. For example, um, if somebody writes in Tokipona, I am feeling bad. You don't know if this person is ill or if this person is sad or yeah. you. You don't know what exactly the bad feeling is because it's not specific. So you would need extra sentences to explain I'm feeling bad in my hand, then his hand is hurting, or I'm feeling bad because this or that happened, then you can deduct the, that this person must be sad because it happened, because it's a sad thing. So, yeah, it's a bit, if you want to talk about very specific things, it's still a bit um, awkward. Yeah, I see, I see. What about Klingon? Have you ever thought of picking mm -hmm. up Klingon? And if not, why? Um, no, <laughs> because I haven't seen um, Star Trek. I, I don't watch Star Trek. I haven't seen almost any Star Trek. So I don't even know what the language sounds like. I have thought of picking up uh, Sindarin or Quenya or both of them. If I find a good textbook, I might might pick them up because I have read all the Lord of the Rings books and seen see. all the movies and I do like the way these languages sound. Okay, I, I see because Klingon, it's really great because you can watch the really old movies and compare them to, to now the new series or one of the newer series called Discovery and it's really fascinating because the actors got a speech coach And it, it really, it appears to be like really a, a language. It's, it's fascinating to me. I, I will send you a link to, to a video later. I'm sure that you find it fascinating too. <laughs> yeah. Probably, probably. And one, another con lang that I've looked at is Lapin, which is the language of the rabbits in Wardership Down. And the author of Wardership Down just mentions enough of the language and mentions the same words again and again just so that in the end, in the very last chapter, you can understand one sentence. Okay. But out of that, out of that tiny little bit, that small vocabulary in the book and that tiny little bit of sentence structure, people have constructed the whole language and it's on the internet, you can learn it. And how is it called? I've just looked at it, I haven't learned it much, but yes. Okay. It's called Lapin, L-A-P-I-N-E. Okay, interesting. <laughs> Let's talk about your tweet, which uh, read like this. Native speakers are overrated. I read and write English at such a level. People can't believe it's not my first language. All without ever talking to a native. So... Yeah, you already explained it a little bit because of your language journey, but maybe could you elaborate a little bit more what you mean? Let's begin with the tagline, native speakers are overrated. What do you mean exactly by, by this? Yeah. Because there is this um, persistent belief among language learners that native speakers make the best teachers of a language And that you aren't going to learn it right if you never start talking to native speakers or if you never learn from a native speaker. And as I said, I learned English to, well, to the level that I'm talking now without ever, ever speaking English with an English native speaker. I did speak German with an English native speaker once as a kid, but um, yeah, never with an English native speaker. So... If you consider that my English is good, then it's proof that you do not need native teachers. And also, along my journey, I've met people who spoke a language that I was learning and I asked them questions and they couldn't quite explain it. For example, when I was learning Finnish, trying to learn it from my Finnish boyfriend was a bit um, 
he basically couldn't answer a question. He could speak the language, but he couldn't talk about it. Yeah. So I still needed the grammar book and I still needed vocabulary lists and everything because I'm, I basically had to learn it separately and then come to him and say, is the sentence correct? Because he could tell me if a sentence is correct or not. But sometimes he couldn't even explain to me what a sentence exactly means because he said, well, um, there's a wordplay here. They couldn't explain it or, well, this with sentences carries this or that emotional content, this or that subtext, like it's ironic or it's it sounds angry or something. But he couldn't explain to me why it sounds angry or why it's ironic or sarcastic or anything. And those are the things that I needed to know. So in the end, I ended up learning a lot of Finnish from books. And by the time I went to Finland, I was just um, learning pronunciation and learning the actual usage. But I, I already knew all the theory. And for me, I always want to know the theory. I basically, I want to know the rules before I start playing the game. And, and the rules are best learned from books and not from native speakers. Yes, and I, I think that oftentimes people say that it's absolutely a, a must to, to have a lot of conversations, preferably with native speakers. And I don't know, I, I think that a lot of people think that's true, that you can only get better by talking to native speakers. And yeah, I, I don't know why. Maybe because they think when they are talking with native speakers that they can absorb it automatically. Or what is your your take on, well, on that? <laughs> you don't absorb it automatically. I've met people who've been living in Germany for 25 years and you can still clearly tell where they're from and they're still using all the wrong articles and all the wrong grammatical genders and still making ambiguous sentences because they're using the grammar wrong and stuff. You have to eventually make a conscious effort to look at the rules for a language. And if you don't do that, you will, you will always stay below native speaker level because even native speaker kids go to school eventually and they are taught the rules for the language. Or even already at four or five years, adults start correcting kids. Start uh, If they make a sentence that's uh, the wrong way around, that has the wrong word order, they repeat it to them in the right word order. Kids do not learn a language like instinctively or implicitly or just by listening. Kids get corrected. Kids get taught their language all day long. Yeah, yeah. And in the same Twitter feed... You also added that you did an interview with a podcast called German through music, I think. And it was yes, your... Yes, and th that was my very first conversation with an native speaker, yes. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's unbelievable <laughs> a little bit. And how did you feel about it? Did it go well, the conversation? And were you nervous? Yes. What nice, yes. I mean, I'd had conversations in English before with non-native speakers, with people from lots of different countries where our common language was English. So I had spoken English before, but never with a native speaker. And I didn't find much of a difference between talking to people who already have a high level of English or talking to a native speaker. Well, the difference is that, of course, a native speaker is going to have perfect pronunciation for his or her region. And... Um, you can start imitating that because you know that this person isn't going to teach you an accent. If you're learning from foreigners, you're going to learn the foreign accent along with it. That's the, that's the downside. That's the price. For example, my English teachers were all Germans. And of course, they couldn't teach us perfect English pronunciation. They were teaching us the German accent along with the language. So I've been trying to drop the accent now, but some... Um, yeah. That's basically the only thing where you really, really need a native speaker's accent. Yeah, but maybe you can listen to a podcast or to a YouTube channel to, yeah, you, to train yourself. Of course, you can do that. It's And I think that maybe... Yeah, you can train your yeah. ear and um, yeah. I recommend it a lot. Exactly. Because I'm, I'm also... I'll, I'm an introvert. I don't... I don't like talking to too many different people on the same day or too many different people the same week. I'm not a very outgoing person. 
So for me, podcasts or audiobooks especially and movies and YouTube are lifesavers to get some listening in because I can't just go where the speakers are. I'd get, <laughs> I'd sit in a corner. I'm not a party person. Yeah, speaking about introversion, I came across one tweet of yours and I'm going to read it out loud. So Today is the day I finally answer to all those emails, WhatsApps and slowly messages. Then I will return to my introvert bubble for another two months. <laughs> uh, that, cracked, yes. <laughs> that cracked me up quite a bit. It's nothing but the truth. <laughs> and by the way, the Twitter account is called the Pluriglot, right? The Pluriglot, uh, which means several, several languages. No. Or what does it mean? Um, I, it, it means, yes, it means many languages. I took it from pluripotent stem cells because um, in your body, the pluripotent stem cells, they aren't omnipotent, you know, they aren't God. Only God is omnipotent. And they aren't totipotent because they can't do everything. But pluripotent means they still, they can still do many different things. And that's why I took that prefix for myself because I won't be able to learn all the languages but I will be able to learn quite a lot in my life, I hope. <laughs> yeah, and I have to read out loud your tagline of the Twitter account. On a quest to find out how many languages can fit into one human brain. And I have to say that, well, I am a follower of yours and your account for me is the best account to follow if you are a language lover. It's really interesting because you have many topics and oftentimes also thought-provoking and maybe also a little bit controversial. Or how, how would yeah, you, how would you des describe your sometimes... Twitter account? Well, basically and mainly, I just like to talk about languages. And sometimes I also use my account to, um, to make sure that I don't forget anything in a language. And I take a simple sentence like, I am buying bread and try to translate it into as many languages as I can. And that's how I noticed that, for example, wait, I never learned the Turkish word for bread. And then I have to look it up. And if I do one sentence every day or even every other day, it helps me notice where I still need to learn something. And it helps me keep all my languages at at least a basic level so I don't forget things. And then that's basically what I do on my Twitter account. Talk about languages and practice my languages and follow also follow accounts um, who talk about languages. Follow speakers of different languages so I can see their tweets and use those to practice. And sometimes, of course, I start arguing with strangers on the internet about politics, which is always on Twitter. Politics are going to appear on your Twitter timeline all the time. And it's really hard to ignore them. And if I am, yeah, if, if I, if I start arguing, then my followers are going to argue back because obviously not every language learner is going to be on the same side politically. So yeah, um, I should avoid those controversies, but I, <laughs> I have no self-control. And because obviously I'm politically, I get flamed from all sides because I try to stay in the middle, but, um, that's another thing. A few people have blocked me because of politics, but, you know, it's their loss. If they are going to block me for one political tweet, then they're going to lose all my language tweets. And if that's what they want, well, they can go. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Because I highly recommend your account. It's it's really the best one. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> I, tr I try to, to follow also... Um, for example, Italian speakers to, yeah, to improve in my Italian, but maybe I should find more people to follow because of course only a few tweets are appearing in Italian. I also use it as, as my language learning resource in a way, or for example, I don't know if anyone is doing this out there, but when I come across 
an idiom or an expression, I just search for it on Twitter. And then, yeah, depending on the expression, you got dozens of great examples in a Twitter conversation and maybe with pictures and so on. And to me, this is really valuable because it's like a, a textbook a little bit, but but very a very practical yeah, it's a, textbook. It's a great idea. <laughs> Yeah, but but nobody it's a, it's talks about it. It's a great idea for it. learning in what in what contexts an idiom is going to appear, and in what contexts you can use it. Yeah, that's that's a really good idea. I'm, I'll, I'll have to start doing that. If I don't know how an idiom is used, just search for it on Twitter. That's a, that's a good strategy. Yeah, I'm going to steal that. Christina, do you have a favorite expression or a favorite idiom or a saying that you want to talk about? It could be in any language. Um, well, currently in in Bavarian we have a, a we have a lot. Every language has a lot, but Bavarian is the one we know the most. And uh, one that I like a lot in Bavarian is if you are if you want to nicely inquire about somebody's mental state, basically if you want to ask somebody if you're crazy, yeah. I love you that ask them, one. Brennt dir hood? Where you ask is your hat burning? <laughs> Is your hat burning? That, that, um, this is awesome. Then in, in, <laughs> in English, they say, have you lost the marbles? Have you lost your marbles? Or have you have you got a screw loose? We have that in German too. Eine Schraube locker haben. Yeah, and I love... Um, in, in Spanish, they don't have many idioms about that. They just ask, estás loco? Are you crazy? And then they they can add intensity. For, for example, uh, loco de atar, are you so crazy that we'd have to tie you up? Yeah, thank you for that. And another one, I saw also, again, a, a tweet of yours, a German idiom, and it's die eierlegende Wollmilchsau. And a literal translation would be the egg-laying Wollmilchsau. And it means something that fulfills impossible requirements. And you added a yes, picture. It's, uh, something that can do everything at once. <laughs> yeah. yeah, people, I, I, I searched for it on Google and somebody drew it. Somebody, oh, really? somebody drew that animal with a pig's head and uh, with a pig's head and with wool on his body and with duck feet and yeah, to make clear that it lays eggs. Anyway, um. Uh, people searching for the egg-laying wool milk pig are, for example, employers who are searching for somebody who is still young, but who has 10 years of experience and who won't charge too much and ha who can do 60 hours of work in a 40-hour work week. If the requirements are really too much for anybody to fulfill, you say this employer is looking for the egg-laying wool milk sow. And on the same note, if somebody's looking for a job and you say, well, I don't want to commute, so it has to be close to home, and they have to pay well, and I want lots of free time, and I want a good office environment, and this and that, and the third thing, and you have too many different requirements, you say that you're looking for the egg-laying wall milk cell. Basically a way of saying you aren't going to find something that fulfills all of this. You have to decide on what's the most important to you, and then maybe compromise on the other stuff. Yeah, that is awesome. And, and it also cracks me up quite a bit when people or when I m myself try to make a literal translation, right? You, you know a great saying or an idiom, you just translate it into English and then you realize that it doesn't work. <laughs> it, it usually doesn't, no. Well, sometimes it does work. For example, in Romanian, they have um, to change something like socks. And it's clear what it means, right? You change it often. You change it all the time. You have a new one all the time. You change it like socks. In Germany, we say you change it like your like a shirt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> awesome. And <laughs> it seems to me, Christina, that you are always making the best out of, of a situation to to make it like a language learning method. I will give you an example. For example, there was a spammer and then 
the spammer wrote to you, but it, I think it was in Romanian. You are trying to make the best out of it. And yeah, you see it as a language resource. The message is actually standardized because that's the great thing. They keep sending the same spam message in different languages and from different accounts, but it's always the same content. It's always the same message. And I've got it in German several times. I got it in English several times. And from every time you see it and report and block the account, then it comes again in a different language. And finally, it started appearing in different languages that weren't German or English. It started appearing in Japanese or in, in Chinese, which I don't speak yet. And then it appeared in Romanian. And I say, finally, one language that I'm learning. Now I can see this message and see how they say it in Romanian. And I already knew the content. If you already know the content, it's easy to read it. Yeah. And I even learned a German expression. I didn't know about that. It's bulimie learnen. Bulimie learnen. It's, it's bulimic studying. And yeah, first I thought it was a joke that it does not exist. But then I looked it up and I guess that in the last few years it, it came up, I guess. I learned that in school, in fact. Okay. I learned that in school 15 years ago. Um, teachers were warning us against it. So the idiom existed already 15 years ago. I see. So now we know that I am But old. Course, uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Christina, I want to thank you very much. It was really awesome. And maybe do you want to tell us where we can find you on the internet? Well, um, if you look for the Pluriglot, you'll find me on Twitter, you'll find me on Instagram. That's basically where I have my language learning stuff. Twitter and Instagram. Look for the Pluriglot. Okay, awesome. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. That's it for today. Thank you very much for listening. And please, if you made it until the end and if you liked it, consider leaving a review. The most simple way would be to leave a five-star review on Spotify. It just takes you a couple of seconds. This would really help the podcast to grow. Thank you so much. I am Daniel and have a good one.